harm reduction. Perhaps this is the best approach to deal with the opioid crisis. I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Dr. Abby Strauss. We're speaking today with neuroscience journalist Maya Solovitz. Maya has written numerous articles and books looking at the nature of addiction, how to deal with it. She's won awards from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, the Drug Policy Alliance, the American Psychological Association, and the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology. This for her 30-plus years of groundbreaking writing. Her latest book, Undoing Drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction. Maya, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You are not just a journalist reporting on your observations. Certainly in the area of harm reduction, you've actually lived this. A chance meeting in the East Village back in 1986. Could you share a little bit of those details? Sure. I had only recently started injecting, which was probably one of the dumbest times to start injecting ever because I was in New York City and half of the people unbeknownst to me were already HIV positive who were injecting drugs around me. But I had started that and I was at a friend's house. He had gone out to cop drugs for us and this other friend of his was there. I didn't know who she was, but we were talking and somehow we came up. She was trying to get into rehab basically and he was getting the drugs sort of for his last binge. So she said something along the lines of, you know, you're at risk for HIV, right? And I was like, what? I thought that was like about gay men or something. And I had, I really, you know, and I was a pretty well informed person, but I, I had no idea. She said, well, you really shouldn't share needles if you possibly can avoid it. But if you can't avoid it, clean them first with bleach and then with water, and that will reduce your risk. Ever since then, when I was in my injecting career, she, I was just about as compulsive as I was about cleaning them as I was about using them in the first place, which was quite compulsive. So this whole concept of harm reduction, as you state in your book, it started years ago back in Liverpool, England, with two individuals. Today, it's become international. Does this make you optimistic? It's quite a journey, and it's been really interesting writing the history of this because when you're sort of in the day-to-day of trying to improve things, it can seem like nothing changes. And then when you realize, like, wait a minute, right, back then it was like two people in Liverpool, and now it's like an international movement, and Joe Biden mentioned it in his State of the Union last night. So it's really quite amazing the progress that has been made. And you always worry that there'll be a backlash, but it has been pretty extraordinary. And one of the things I think that has been really useful to harm reduction growing has been that because it was controversial from the beginning, it had to have a very strong empirical evidence base. And it was always a collaboration between people who use drugs themselves and public health people and researchers. When people were saying, oh, this encourages drug use, we could say, look, the data shows that that's exactly wrong. The opposite is true. That, I think, helped it to grow, although it took a lot longer than I would have liked. Give us, please, a synopsis of harm reduction, the nuances of it. Harm reduction is the idea within drug policy that we should focus first on stopping people from getting hurt rather than trying to stop them from getting high. And this can be applied outside drug policy to issues where there's any type of risk behavior. For example, COVID, you wear a mask because nobody's going to abstain from socializing forever. And driving a car, that's a dangerous activity. You're going to have a seat belt and airbags the designated driver for alcohol driving prevention. There's a whole bunch of these things that can be seen as harm reduction. What the harm reduction movement did was create the term and bring those things together under this umbrella and argue that any policy that 
we use should focus first on reducing harm, because if your policy is doing more harm than it is helping, why do you have this policy? When this started to be discussed, there were discussions about giving people clean needles, that it would reduce the exposure to HIV or, and other infections. And people argued against it. They said, no, 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 this is just making them take their drugs in a safer manner. It's really not fixing the problem. It did reduce the burden of the other illnesses, to be sure. Has that attitude changed? Do people look at needle programs in a positive way now? And the data is overwhelming that needle exchange in combination with expanding access to drugs like methadone and buprenorphine can end an HIV epidemic in drug users. We saw this in New York State when I was using, the prevalence was over 50% at certain times in people who inject drugs. Now it is less than 3%. That was accomplished largely by providing clean needles and by providing expanded access to methadone and buprenorphine for treatment. The thing that people don't understand about needle exchange is well, people who participate in needle exchange are five times more likely to get into treatment than they are if they don't participate. It's not enabling or lengthening the addiction or making anything worse. It is just keeping people alive long enough till they're ready to recover. One of the things we know about addiction is that most people do not suddenly change from shooting up to being 100% abstinent from everything permanently forever. People do not change that way generally. Occasionally you do see this, but for the most part, people change more gradually. They try abstinence, they flip, they try again, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, you can look at this when you're making any behavioral change. Most people do not instantly perfectly follow a diet, instantly perfectly follow their exercise routine. This is the same kind of thing that we see because you have to learn new skills to be able to recover. You don't learn anything hard instantly. The traditional model for a long time was this war on drugs, scare tactics, if you will, with the commercial, this is your brain on drugs. Why didn't this approach work? The people who are at highest risk for addiction are people who are suffering in some way. They tend to either have some kind of outlying temperament, which is sometimes a predisposition to mental illness. So for example, if it's a predisposition to depression, you might have a kind of sad temperament and that escalates as you grow up and reinforce that negative thinking within yourself, not realizing, of course, that you're doing this, but over time that can become a disorder through development. Other predisposing factors can be other forms of mental illness, or basically anything that makes the kid stand out. So if you're extremely bold, if you're extremely anxious, if you're extremely extreme, you won't fit in, you won't feel socially comfortable, and then you will likely find that drugs help with that. Then if you become addicted, you will end up compulsively using the drugs despite negative consequences, even when they stop working for the purpose for which you were using them originally. When you're trying to deter people by scaring them, you're assuming that they have something to lose. If they feel like their life's horrible, why would fear deter them? At least they might get a little pleasure. It's really funny when people say, well, I saw those commercials and I was terrified and I never did drugs. I'm like, well, yeah, you were never at risk then. People who try drugs and don't become addicted tend to be people who their lives are pretty good. And this is also why economic insecurity and hopelessness can also increase risk for addiction. I forgot to mention a very important thing here, which is child trauma. And this obviously can also put you at high risk. It can also make you feel like you stand out socially and can't connect because you're just terrified of everything because your home life is so chaotic.
it's really important to recognize that people with addiction aren't just like happily walking along seeking extra pleasure. For the most part, the people who get hooked are people who are in some kind of emotional pain. I think that many people do not understand that being addicted is not a pleasurable experience. People suffer a lot and they wish they had the skills or the access to get away from the addiction years ago. When we started talking about harm reduction, we knew that there was another side to the term. The other side of the term was that we were helping you not be so preoccupied and harming yourself that you could then learn other social skills, get into a group, if it was medication-assisted treatment, if it was AA, whatever. The whole concept of harm was the takeaway, the crisis. This is what is so backwards about so much of our approach, because we think that if we just drive these people into the ground and make them suffer more and do tough love and make them hit bottom, that that will fix the thing. In reality, addiction is defined as compulsive use that continues despite negative consequences. So making things worse is exactly what isn't going to work. People sometimes do get better at the worst moment, or sometimes they die, or sometimes they get worse, or sometimes they get better for a little bit. And it's a narrative device. It's not a scientific way of helping people, this idea that we need to make them hit bottom. This is the beauty of harm reduction. When somebody comes to a needle exchange, hey, I just want you to be healthy. I'm not saying you need to stop doing what you're doing immediately or you need to do anything to please me. I just want you to be healthy. And since people with addiction are so stigmatized and so ostracized so often, when somebody just says, here's something I want you to live, that's powerful. And that starts to help them have more self-respect and more self-love rather than continuing to treat them like the scum of the earth, which they're already being treated like, and it's not stopping. Now you're talking about compulsions, and you've made the point that it's the compulsion that's the problem, not the drug. If you just take a drug and you can take it or leave it, you are clearly not addicted. <laughs> you have no compulsion. You are just right there. What happens in compulsive behavior is that you find something that you think works, and then you just repeat it over and over again, still trying to make it do whatever you're supposed to do. And I have experience with this as somebody on the autism spectrum, because I've had lots of compulsive behaviors that I had long before I was addicted. I always wonder when people are, oh, well, addiction is fun. OCD isn't fun. None of these things are fun. Yes, you can certainly get some pleasure from drugs, but you can also get some relief from anxiety from your little OCD thing. Doesn't mean that they are the most effective coping skill. Compulsion happens when you feel like this is the only thing that can provide you with well-being and the only way that you can feel okay and safe and warm and loved. If you feel exiled from those things normally and you get a sense of that, like particularly with something like an opioid, which actually uses the brain systems that make us socially connect, why wouldn't you become compulsive about that? Like we all become compulsive about love and we all become compulsive about our kids when we have them or all of these kinds of things because that's how we're wired recognizing that this is a disorder of compulsion and a disorder where people are prioritizing the wrong things, not where people have no free will. We've seen people in love do the craziest things, just as crazy as they would do around addiction. But we don't lock them up or try to make them hit bottom. We recognize this is like normal part of the human species behavior. With addiction, it's just misdirected. We need to find ways to help people redirect that passion in a more healthy manner. You obviously stand on both sides of the issue. 
it would be very interesting if you could give us a synopsis of what harm reduction events helped you. Absolutely, it was the case that when I was sitting with that woman in my friend Dave's apartment, my friend Dave was HIV positive, and I would have shared a needle with him. She prevented that from happening. That was certainly one turning point. The concept that there is a dramatic moment, I did have somewhat of a dramatic moment later on, but for the most part, it was, okay, so at that point, I knew that there was this information out there that could save people's lives, my friends' lives, my life, that we were not being given. And I became really angry about the fact that we were seen as so worthless that they wouldn't even tell us to use household bleach. In fact, they would try to prevent us from getting that information. And the politicians thought that having that information would harm other innocent children by not letting us die as examples to them. And I found that repulsive. I'm a child of a Holocaust survivor. I don't like things that reek of eugenics. That started spurring me to try to take action. Now, during my active addiction, I was not so effective. But eventually, I realized that I needed help. I ended up getting help, and I ended up in sort of traditional recovery. That was the only thing that was out there for me. I did try methadone briefly. Unfortunately for me, I was also shooting cocaine, and the program had this idea that like I wasn't bad enough for long-term maintenance, but I wasn't good enough to be continued. So basically I did a six-month detox and I got worse and worse and they just let me go. So that was not very effective. And then I wandered my way into your traditional 28-day, 12-step rehab. That was what I had. That was what was offered to me. And so that's what I grabbed hold of and I did for quite a few years. And then I started looking at the research and started being like, wait a minute, they're telling you this is the only way you can recover. And that's just not true. And there's a lot of stuff that I was learning within rehab and 12-step programs that isn't accurate, that may be true for you or may be true for one individual, but is not generally applicable. And that if you make it that way, you end up harming people. You know, I was constantly being told the only alternative is jails, institutions, or death. That's a terrible thing to say because for a lot of people, it doesn't work. As I began to study the research literature, I began to learn a lot about what addiction actually is and how it can be treated medically. In 12-step programs, we were told that maintenance using methadone and buprenorphine, you're not clean, you're not in recovery, really, you're still high. So I learned that that's completely not true. Look at the data, people, for one, methadone and buprenorphine used long-term are the only things we have that cut the death rate by 50% or more. And if we had this kind of treatment for cancer, we'd be dancing in the street. We wouldn't be telling people, can you get off that stuff? You're not clean. And then I, I just sort of, over time, began learning more about different things. And the thing about harm reduction is that it is ecumenical. It's basically like, do what works for you. If that's 12-step, great. In harm reduction, recovery is defined as any positive change as determined by the person making that change. For some people, that definition is too loosey-goosey. For other people, it's a revelation because they realize that even before they achieve abstinence, they are doing work that is leading there and that nothing is wasted, that you are always learning and always available to move forward, that sometimes it may be very difficult, especially when you talk about somebody who has like a long trauma and mental illness history, taking away the substance, they may need to learn new skills before they can give up the substance. Harm reduction sort of opens all that up and says, we're going to meet you where you are. We're going to care about you just because you are human and all humans deserve life and deserve to be cared for. We're going to work from there. 
what really always strikes me is what about pre-drug abuse harm reduction? The notion of what brings people into drug abuse in the first place to reduce the situation so they don't need harm reduction afterwards. The best form of prevention that we could probably do is reduce trauma in the first place. If we can't do that, at the very least, when people are traumatized, meet them where they are early before they develop all these coping skills that can be very negative and lead to addiction. People really need to be educated about mental illness from a young age so that we know this is depression, this is anxiety. These are the boundaries of where you might need help. If people sort of understood that their outlying temperament doesn't mean they're a bad person that will always be rejected, instead means they may have some difficulties and here's some ways of dealing with it. I have crazy emotional sensitivity, but this has led me to be a reasonably empathetic person who can do the work that I do. It's both a gift and a curse. But having kids be able to understand these things before they start self-medicating, I think would be the ultimate in prevention. It's really not about drugs at all. It's really about how do we get kids to know how to manage whatever temperament and predispositions that they have in the most healthy possible way. That would be a very broad definition of harm reduction. But I think if the idea is always let's reduce harm, you don't really care so much about if you get some ecstasy, I think you're on the right path. I don't think we're ever going to prevent teenagers from doing dumb things, but we can make the dumb things that they do less risky. In the medical community, as of late, we've heard a lot that we need to look at addiction as a medically treatable disease, not a moral failing. In your book, you seem to take a little bit of a different stance, saying that even when people are addicted, drug use is still a choice. So how does this position itself? Is this a disease? Is it somewhat a moral failing? Is it something else? My argument is that it is a learning disorder or a developmental disorder. If you want to call it a disease, I'm okay with that. But I just, all the baggage around the term disease in American culture is, it's a disease and the only treatment is 12 steps, abstinence for life from everything. Seeing it as a learning disorder makes sense of how people actually behave because people don't shoot up in the courtroom when they're on trial. People try to hide their addictive behavior because they recognize that it is frowned upon. And that shows that they are making some choices. Now, are they as freely making those choices as they would be if they weren't addicted? No, they're not. But we're talking about sort of an impairment of will, not a non-existence of will. So when you recognize that it comes in this gray area and that it is due to learned behavior, that it falls in that area. I mean, it really is very comparable. It uses the same circuitry as falling in love and as parenting. Your brain thinks, this must be my number one priority. This is what my survival or my genetic survival depends on. That is a hugely motivating and priority setting system. It is difficult to resist that system if it's pulling you in a certain direction. Difficult, but not impossible. I am certainly not arguing that addiction is a moral failing. I am arguing that it is not a disease like Alzheimer's where you really have zero control over your behavior after a certain point. It is more about a situation that's somewhere in between, kind of like depression, where sometimes you can perk up, sometimes you just can't. It's frustrating because we don't really have language for that kind of middle ground. And we like to think, oh, people with addiction are just zombies who are totally controlled by the drug and have no responsibility for their behavior, or they have total responsibility for their behavior and we should be horrible to them to fix it. 
if we actually want to help, we have to look at, okay, National Institute on Drug Abuse and the DSM define addiction as compulsive behavior that continues in the face of negative consequences. What does that tell us? Punishment is not going to fix it. Regardless of we think it's a moral failing or not, punishment is not going to fix it because if it did, by definition, it wouldn't exist. So that is where we have to start from. So you also made some reference to the whole problem with the criminalization of the drugs and the drug use. How has this hindered trying to get the best level of help to the people who need that? Criminalization is basically a mechanism for spreading stigma. If you criminalize something, you want the public to see the people who engage in that behavior as bad and wrong and immoral and to stigmatize them and exclude them and isolate them. That makes addiction worse. Go to any of these conferences these days, there's all like, oh, we got to stop stigma, you know, stigma is bad and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, let's say person with addiction instead of addict, which I am totally on board with. But if you do that in the context of criminalization, you are bailing out the ocean with a bucket. It's not going to work. You really need to have the message be similar, not say in the criminal justice system, it's a sin. In the medical system, it's a disease. Let's just say it is a medical disorder like depression, like anxiety, like any mental illness, virtually all mental illnesses are also developmental disorders because if you look at them, they almost all come on at a certain phase in development. Like 75% of all mental illness starts before age 25. With addiction, it's 90%. This is like a brain development thing. We can kind of get a sense of that just by the timing of it. Understanding that and recognizing that, first of all, it's defined by its resistance to punishment. So using the criminal justice system by definition is not going to work. Also, we know the criminalization that we've used so far has made things worse. Because if you give somebody a criminal record, what do you do? Okay, now they have a much harder time getting a job and an education. What are the things that are most linked with recovery? Having a decent education and a decent job. So now you're just handicapping them. If we want to do better about addiction, we have to consistently say that it's all a medical issue. It's not a criminal issue. From your just personal experience, why is our society so inclined to be so simplistic and to use shame? Have they not learned? I think that we have to look at what does this system do very effectively? Lock up poor black and brown people. It's really good at doing that. And this doesn't mean that everybody in the system is consciously racist. It just means that we have created this propaganda over years and years, created this system that we think is about dealing with drugs, but it isn't because it doesn't deal with alcohol or tobacco or caffeine. It doesn't do what we know would work if we want to actually deal with people's addiction. So what does this system do? It gets politicians elected. Until it stops getting politicians elected, it is going to be very difficult to get rid of it. And I think we are starting to be at a place where that is changing. It was ridiculous to see the sort of controversy over, oh my God, they're giving out crack pipes kind of thing that just arose from the Republicans in relation to Biden funding harm reduction. Nobody's saying we're going to go on street corners and say, do you want a crack pipe? That is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who are already injecting drugs. And if they can smoke them, they will be much less at risk for bloodborne disease and for overdose. That is what this is about. They weren't able to create as big a panic as they would have done 10, 15 years ago. Lots of the media fact checkers came in and said, you know what, this is about actually preventing disease. It's not about let's all smoke crack and whatever. You know, we can have these debates 
over what works and what doesn't. And here's the empirical evidence. But when the empirical evidence repeatedly is ignored, you have to start to look at some other factors. And that's when you have to look at, well, how did we get these laws in the first place? It wasn't like the FDA sat down and said, these drugs are safe, these drugs are unsafe, these will be legal, these will be illegal, because you couldn't end up with the categories that we have if an actual scientific committee did that. Well, what is the actual history? Oh my God, Chinese railroad workers are smoking opium. We better stop that. Oh my God, Black people are using cocaine and Mexican people are smoking pot. Like immigrants are bringing alcohol. Every time you look at where these laws come from, except for the creation of the FDA, it's about a moral panic. So the whole concept of the syringe exchange programs and needle programs has evolved. In Florida, proudly, we finally got approval a few years ago. We're only about the 39th state to come on board. I'm proud to say I was instrumental in the process of bringing it here to Palm Beach County. And our county administrators, it only took them a couple of weeks, actually, to pass an ordinance to say yes we're going to do it. So we tend to be a little more progressive than the rest of the state. The question is, is moving forward when we see things like in Oregon, decriminalizing pretty much all illegal drug possessions and places where they're doing supervised injection sites, which I believe in New York, they're doing these things now. Abby and I have talked about it. This is something that still is a little uncomfortable for our generation to go to that level. What do you think about that? Where, where are we actually going with that? Where I would like to see us go is where we've seen Canada and some European countries go, which is, well, they still have safe injection sites, but actually provide a safer supply. Because when you're having people shooting poison drugs under medical supervision and having to reverse the overdoses, it's better for them to have Dilaudid or heroin or whatever it is than to have God knows what kind of fentanyl that is in the street supply. This is not saying we should have sexy salespeople pushing to provide consumption of a safe supply. That is a very different thing from dealing with people who are actively addicted, who are clearly in trouble, who are clearly not stopping, despite the fact that everyone around them is dying of overdose. And I mean, the trauma in the drug community right now is enormous. I'm sure you have seen some of this. It's just, I mean, I was there back in the AIDS days and like, at least with AIDS, you got to say goodbye. This is just, it seems sort of random because the supply is so poisonous. I think that's where we need to get to. Again, I don't want to see it commercialized and I don't want to see marketing or promotion or anything like that. But for the people that we have now that we have to deal with, cutting them off of medical supply if they're on it now is superbly counterproductive. It often kills people, whether their problem is pain or addiction or both. And we're doing that on a regular basis, unfortunately. So in terms of supervised consumption, if you go to these places, again, it's kind of like if you go to a syringe exchange, once you see it in action, you get it. It's like, okay, this whole business of, oh my God, little kids are going to see this and think we condone this behavior. But if you brought a little kid to a needle exchange, I guarantee you that nobody would be like, oh, that's what I want to do when I grow up. They might want to work there if they are an especially compassionate kind of child. When you look at what active addiction is actually like lived on the street, it is not attractive. It is not glamorous. If you're walking with your kid past a safe injection site and they're like, why are they doing that? You can just explain, we're helping people who are in trouble and we're taking care of them. We're keeping them alive. And I think that too many people who want to offer opinions about the substance abuse problem learn a little bit and think they understand the whole.
Yes, I really feel like half of my colleagues in the journalism field who cover this area, they kind of believe everything I learned, I needed to know about drugs I learned in DARE in eighth grade. They think they know what they're talking about, and they really don't. So you'll get this absurd coverage where you'll get people saying, oh, you know, the dealers are putting fentanyl into cocaine to hook people. Well, I just bought some cocaine to go out dancing, and I fell asleep. That's a really effective promotion. How would that even work? If Presuming I didn't die, of course. This is not how drug use works unless you actually, and I think part of the problem with understanding is that that you really do need a cross-disciplinary understanding. You need to kind of have a little anthropology, a little sociology, a little medicine, a little neuroscience, a little history. It is not a one-dimensional thing. And we all think, of course, we're experts on it because we saw a movie or something. It's difficult to make people understand that they don't know things and that knowing that they don't know things is kind of the first step to getting better knowledge of what they need. So to play with the term, a harm reduction strategy that we also have to deal with is making sure people aren't harming things because they think they know more than they do. This is fascinating. I think harm reduction in general is a kind of good philosophy for life because We don't want to do harm, but we're all going to do harm. We're all harming the environment. We're all not always as nice as we could be. And if we know that and we know that, okay, let's try to reduce that. We're not going to be perfect. You can get a lot closer to perfect when you know that you're not going to be perfect. So I have another question. It's kind of a source of frustration for me. And I wondering what your take is on it. What is the ultimate goal? You know, we talk about, well, the overarching goal is to reduce opioid overdose deaths. And then there's this kind of feeling in the medical community, well, we need to get these folks off of these drugs. In the work that I've done in needle exchange, and what I run is a wound care clinic as a dermatologist, we talk to the patient without moralizing. And uh, I've heard many stories about, yeah, I've tried Suboxone multiple times, or I've tried 12 steps, or I've tried this, but I'm just not ready for it. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. And I feel like a sense of impotence, perhaps, as to what is it as medical people that we can do to make a difference? What's the best thing we can do? What is our ultimate goal? Be there. Be there for that person and help them as much as you can, because just a caring presence in their life. So many times when you show up in an ER for wound care with something related to injection, you're going to get treated horribly. You're going to be the last person seen. They're going to not give you any painkillers. It's going to be awful. They're going to treat you like the absolute scum of the earth. If you are there not doing that and being like, okay, like, let's see if we can, you know, deal with this infection. Just by doing that, you're showing them that is not how healthcare has to be. If they were to seek help, that there are people who are going to be compassionate. A lot of the times people don't try to quit, not because the drug use is so fun or because everything's so great out there, but because the treatment is so awful. Who would in their rational mind want to go to such a place? Why would you do that, right? You wouldn't. If you knew that you could go to a place where you'd be treated as a human being with dignity and respect, you would be much more likely to try. And if you start trying, the more you try, the more likely you are to get better. I kind of look at it like learning a musical instrument. You're really going to suck at first, but you're not going to get better by somebody screaming at you. You have to learn technique and you have to practice. And if you can't get to that, you're not going to get better. So if we just give people the space to 
be beginners and to slowly get better and to not be perfect and to just show them that somebody cares. You're certainly not going to see stuff overnight, but over time you would be, and I'm sure you've even already seen this, somebody comes by and you don't recognize them because they are so much healthier than they were. And certainly like had that happen, you know, within my reporting and within the recovery community, it does happen. We do know actually that most people do recover provided they can live long enough to get there. Most people actually recover at a young age, but right now, I think something like half of all addictions end by age 35 and not by the person dying. We don't see that. And in harm reduction, basically, you're selecting for seeing the people who aren't better yet. It's the opposite of what you see in like a 12-step program where the people who aren't doing well don't show up. It can look much more hopeless because, you know, we always have that availability bias where we think that what's in front of us is what is. The people who've gone on with their lives, well, we're not seeing them anymore. It is really important to just note that. And as a journalist, I have to always say that to people because you can just have terrible bias coverage by not recognizing that sampling error, basically. Maya Salovitz, a neuroscience journalist and author, her latest book, Undoing Drugs. Maya, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. 